Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. When students are challenged in the classroom, their first impulse is to avoid being tested by attempting to test the teacher. Is the assignment difficult? There must be something wrong with the teacher. Is it hard to understand? It must be the teacher's fault. Am I failing the class? Surely the teacher has credibility issues. I could go on, but you get the point. A student avoids responsibility for his or her failures by blaming the teacher. Worse, the same student delights in gossip about the teacher instead of delighting in the teacher's knowledge. In the Gospel of Mark, the miracles of Jesus are given not as proof of his credibility, but as a test of his students' faith. Do the Pharisees and the Lord's disciples trust in the Torah? Do they delight in the Lord's precepts, or do they seek signs and wonders as proof of his credibility? Do you not yet see or understand? Twice I fed you in the wilderness, and still you refuse to get the message. Alas, no sign will be given to you except the bread of my Father's teaching, and you had better study it, because the final exam is just around the corner. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Mark, chapter 8, verses 11 to 26. You're listening to the Bible as Literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 170 of the Bible as Literature podcast. We continue our reading of Mark chapter 8, verse 11. The Pharisees came out and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. This is a huge problem because the sign that is repeatedly given in Mark is the teaching. What more do you want than the teaching? It's the same question you have to ask of yourselves today when you enter a church. What are you looking for if you're not coming to hear the gospel? Well, the disciples, the crowds, the Pharisees, everyone treats Jesus as an individual without listening to his teaching. And that's really what Mark is trying to do with Jesus in the gospel is to separate the teaching from the person. Because if the Pharisees are coming out to test Jesus, why? Jesus taught a thing, take that teaching home and apply it. If it works, thank God. If it doesn't work, do something else. But why do they come out to test Jesus? That's what's so strange about how everybody treats Jesus is that they want to test the teacher. They don't want to test the teaching. When we went to school and we were presented with a teaching, our professors would say, don't believe me. If you can find a better argument, go make an argument from valid sources, and I'll have to accept it. Don't trust me, and don't reject me. 
test what I'm saying with actual hard work and scholarship. The Pharisees won't do that hard work. They want to go against Jesus, the person. This is another example of the way in which the standing content of Mark debunks theories about the identity of Jesus, the messianic secret. We've hit on this over and over again. Jesus is simply expressing what the narrative has been hammering on. I'm not interested in your fascination with miracles and signs and wonders. Have you not read Deuteronomy? Don't trust miracles, signs, and wonders. Don't come and seek evidence to prove who I am. You're asking the wrong question. You should be listening to what I say. So it's a double hit. It's shifting the focus off of signs and wonders and shifting the focus off of Jesus onto the content which his father asked him to deliver. I can't stress this enough. In Deuteronomy 13, it says that even if they come and they show a sign or a wonder and the teaching contradicts the one who spoke Torah, it says, let's go after other gods, you still have to reject him even if that person is able to perform signs and wonders. You're supposed to listen to the person, not watch the person. Which means that the miracles of Jesus in Mark are a test. If you believe Jesus because of the miracles, you are actually breaking the Torah. That's the point. It's a setup. It's amazing to me how people get it wrong systematically. It's not amazing because Mark is a setup. You're put in the position to get it wrong. But teachers get it wrong. People who should be studying scripture go on and on about how inspiring the miracles of Mark are and how we find hope in healing. That's not what Mark is about. It's about hope, but not hope from healing the physical body which is passing away. It's about the hope of the instruction. Are you placing your hope in the worker of signs and wonders or are you placing your hope in the God of Abraham? Because it's clear in Deuteronomy that the one who works signs and wonders, because you're projecting your ego onto the signs and wonders, will lead you to idolatry. And Jesus doesn't want to lead anyone to idolatry. That's why he doesn't want anyone talking about miracles, because he did not come to work signs and wonders. The signs and wonders have a function, but that function is to establish the hegemony of the instruction. Sighing deeply in his spirit, he said, why does this generation seek for a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. Again, the only sign that you receive in Mark that counts is not a sign. It's an anti-sign. It's the word. Why is the word an anti-sign? Because it's given in place of imagery. It's given in place of the flashy thing that human beings get excited about. There's nothing flashy or exciting about a text, about an instruction. In fact, the text is usually counter-exciting because what it's asking you to do is very unpleasant. So there's this tension between the fireworks and the classroom. And Jesus is begging them to take the classroom seriously. Well, and if we imagine that this is all preparation so that one can understand the final act of the crucifixion, understanding this, as you say, anti-sign. It's anti-sign that the one who teaches the word, who's selected by God to be the deliverer of the people, the one who brings the word, is the one who's cursed and killed. 
you have to completely retrain your mind in order to bring those two ideas together. Now keep in mind, don't hear the word anti, the way the media talks, anti this, anti that. In Greek, the word means in the place of. So it's not that it's against as though there's some kind of ideological battle going on. No. The sign is replaced by the text. The text is anti sign. It's instead of. It takes the place of the sign. That's the way in which scripture is anti-kingly, anti-authority. It's not against authority. It replaces one kind of authority with another kind of authority. It replaces your king with the God of Abraham, and so on and so forth. Leaving them, he again embarked and went away to the other side. So once again, he's shaking the dust off his sandals and moving on. He doesn't even ask them to go with them. He's like, I'm moving on. If you come along, try to keep up because you're wearing me out with your hard-heartedness. So I love the way Jesus reacts. He's like, heavy sigh. All right, you guys just aren't understanding. And he's gone. And this is what I find so fascinating with Mark. Two huge passages about feeding the crowds. And we think, why is he needlessly repeating this? There's no needless repetition because the Pharisees literally get three verses here, short verses, before Jesus moves on. Mark does not spend time on things that are not going to bear fruit, just like Jesus. And they had forgotten to take bread and did not have more than one loaf in the boat with them. And he was giving orders to them saying, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. In other words, to make a long story short, beware of the teaching of learned religious scholars like Dr. Benton and myself, and beware of the leaven of the king, of government authorities, of anyone who asserts power. He doesn't say, beware of them. He says, beware of their teaching. Notice Jesus's focus is on the teaching, the teaching, the teaching, the teaching. The leaven spreads, the leaven penetrates the entire lump. And that's why you have to be careful is because once this teaching enters in, once you accept the presupposition of the power of Herod, the entire lump is then corrupted. And so when I say don't trust Dr. Benton and don't trust me, I'm deadly serious. I'm not just saying it to be self-effacing the way people do in the Midwest, which is actually an expression of arrogance. I'm saying study Greek, study Hebrew, read scripture, and if we make a mistake, point it out. Don't give us authority. There's no authority to us accept the authority of the teaching. But if that's true, then we look to the teaching with you. And our hope for anyone who's studying scripture with us is that they would one day become our teacher. Because ultimately it is scripture that is the teacher, scripture that is the authority. They began to discuss with one another the fact that they had no bread. What an idiotic thing to discuss. How many times do I have to make manna come down from heaven before you realize that I am the one who provides the bread for the offering? Have you not read Genesis? Do you not remember the story of the sacrifice of Abraham's eldest? Do you not get the message that God himself will provide the lamb for the offering? Come on! Not only this, I mean, these are the very men who gathered up the scraps from the crowds. And they're worried about not having enough food. The irony here is so thick. 
And this is right after Jesus had to sigh a heavy sigh when he was spending time with the Pharisees. Now he's got the same problem with his own disciples. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you discuss the fact that you have no bread? Do you not see or understand? Do you have a hardened heart? And the heart is the seat of reason. So a hardened heart does not mean cruel or unhappy. A hardened heart means a blockhead. Why are you such blockheads? Why is it impossible for this teaching to penetrate? And remember, this is also, once again, a reference to the sin against the Holy Spirit because it was Pharaoh's heart whom God hardened in Exodus. So on the one hand, it's clear the disciples are just being lunkheads. But on the other hand, there's this willful ignorance because you don't want to hear, because you still want to believe that you can provide for yourself and secure yourself in the wilderness by your own hand. You can't accept that man's life dangles from the lips of God. You can't accept that. The Syrophoenician woman was hanging on every word of Jesus. And when Jesus said, I don't want to teach you anymore, she said, please, I beg you to keep teaching me. Here the disciples, having seen these wonders, which are not supposed to be believed on their own, because they're supposed to lead back to a teaching, and the teaching is supposed to be what's authoritative, yet when he tries to teach them, they can't help but think about the actual sign, which is the bread, but then they forget about the signs they saw about the bread. There's nothing to call this but willful ignorance. And here you have the explicit reference to the sin against the Holy Spirit. Having eyes do you not see, and having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces you picked up? They said to him, 12. So before I go further, the point is that this quote, which occurs in Jeremiah and Ezekiel, once again refers to God's wrath against those who refuse to understand. So if they don't see and they don't hear, God's going to close their eyes and shut their ears. That's the point. And here's the reference at the end. When they answered, they themselves answered, as you said, Richard, 12, which means they know they saw the miracle. They counted the baskets. When I broke the seven for the 4,000, how many large baskets full of broken pieces did you pick up? And they said to him, seven. And he was saying to them, do you not yet understand? So they can confirm even the facts of the miracles themselves. You can't say they forgot it. They right. remembered that it happened. Right. And so and the details of what happened. They carried the baskets themselves. Look at what Jesus says. Why does this generation seek for a sign? Do you not yet understand? I mean, the frustration of Jesus is palpable. Now, again, why did Jesus pick such lousy disciples that they still can't understand this? The disciples are no different than the human beings because each one of us has that leaven of Herod and the Pharisees inside us. The Pharisees who want to decide who's in and out, Herod who has the power to enforce who is in and out, that leaven gets inside us and we cannot understand another thing from then on. The disciples, like every single human being, has to purge themselves of every contradictory idea to what Jesus is saying. It's a zero-sum game. As soon as you let in Jesus's leaven, it can start to push the other teaching out, but once you get the other teaching in there, it's going to push everything else out.
And they came to Bethsaida, and they brought a blind man to Jesus and implored him to touch him. Now, Bethsaida means the house of fish. It's a place of fishing on the Sea of Galilee. So, once again, there's this emphasis on evangelization, but not evangelization the way modern Christians mean. What they mean is proselytization. Jesus is not interested in proselytizing anyone. He's not interested in getting converts for his group. Jesus is interested in teaching people how to fish. It's a beautiful metaphor. So instead of putzing around with the disciples who are still not getting it, he's going fishing again. He's going to find other disciples, and it's significant that his own followers were fishermen, and he's going to a fishing town now on the coast of the Sea of Galilee to recruit more fishermen. But poor Jesus, of course, the first thing that happens when he comes is they implore him to touch him. They want somebody healed again. Jesus just can't escape this curse to him, which is that everyone just presses him to do stuff for them rather than want to listen to his teaching. I tried to explain this in church this week at the sermon on the Saturday of Pascha, Holy Saturday, that we come to churches in this country with a consumer mentality. What can the church do for me? And this is incorrect. You are just like these folks in the Gospel of Mark who are seeking a sign. You should come to church to learn how to go out and serve people, not to proselytize them so your church will grow, but to go out and serve them. What can you do as a follower of Jesus for the community? That's the real question. The metaphor, the scriptural metaphor, the Pauline metaphor for the church is a community of slaves in God's household who are assigned duties. How we went from a community of slaves assigned duties for the sake of the poor, meaning those in need, whatever their need, not just the literal poor. How we went from that to treating that church like a place where people come like they're going to a hospital to get coddled, I have no idea. Because in Mark, if Jesus heals you, there's an expectation now that you're going to pick up a shovel. There is a price, and the price is service to the master of the house. You are not set free in Exodus. You are set free from Pharaoh so that you can be enslaved to the God of Moses. It's no joke. Taking the blind man by the hand, He brought him out of the village, and after spitting on his eyes and laying his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? Now you have to hear this question in the context of Jeremiah and Ezekiel and the refusal of the followers of Jesus to see what's going on. So there's a parallel here. Now, first thing I notice is that he brought him out of the village. Jesus is not interested in the crowd. He's not interested in performing. He's not interested in getting people to like him. He's going to go do his business, but his business is never going to be divorced from teaching. So he's going to teach this man who's blind and the blindness he uses as a way of spreading the teaching. And he looked up and said, I see men, for I see them like trees walking around. And here looked up could also be translated, and he gained sight and said, The point is he's looking around and he can't still see. He can sort of discern people walking, but it's not clear to him what he's looking at. And what's striking, Richard, you pointed this out when we were chatting earlier, is that the disciples couldn't see after the first feeding 
and the first multiplication of the loaves. And even after the second multiplication, they couldn't see. So Jesus worked two signs and they were still consigned to blindness because of their stubbornness. They are convicted in their idolatry. They want Jesus to be a statue, and so therefore, for them, Jesus is a statue. Even though at the end of Mark, you have a hollowed out stone, but you have no statue to show for it. But they want that statue there in the tomb when they get there. Now, Jesus is going to make a second attempt to try to help this man. Then he again laid his hands on his eyes, and he looked intently and was restored and began to see everything clearly. This is a message of hope in that if you hear the teaching and you don't understand, there's an opportunity to listen to it again. But the third time, as we know from baseball, you strike out if you still don't get it. It's almost as if Jesus in the previous scene on the boat is trying not to test his disciples one more time because if they can't get it a third time just like Peter the third time you do it it's a testimony against yourself you have decided to reject it there's no more hope after two there's some hope and with this blind man after two now he finally sees the first one he was able to make out some shapes like you were saying some forms now the second one he's clear so he has hope look in Paul's letter to the Galatians, you don't want to see Paul the third time because then you're out of time. Here in Mark, not only has Jesus multiplied the loaves twice, but he's now healed someone with his own saliva twice. Not going to do it a third time because if he does it a third time, you're out of time. This is the point. This is such a beautiful motif in the New Testament and it recurs over and over again. You will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And once that happens, you're done. This is what I tried to explain to folks about standing during the Paschal season. It's not because you're happy. It's because you're standing for judgment. The one whom you pierced, the one whom you crucified, has come back. He has been raised by the Father who was frustrated with the decision of the human court and reversed it because it was unjust. And now he's coming back in power, as we hear in 1 Corinthians, to put everything in subjection under his feet, which means you're going to be judged. There's no more opportunity for the Lord to provide you a wedding garment. There's no more opportunity for you to find oil for your lamp. There's no more opportunity to read scripture and to study and to seek wisdom because the judgment is at hand. The Lord has appeared and you are standing in his court. When we hear the verse, Arise, O God, and judge the earth, and the priest comes out with the gospel, it's too late. The judgment is happening. And this is the spirit in Mark, that you're always out of time. That's what the one-two pattern means. You're out of time, because the next time it's over. I really want people to understand the sense of urgency in Mark. It's an intense book. It emphasizes the immediacy of the gospel and the immediacy of the coming judgment, and the book ends quickly, and it leaves you gasping for air. And he sent him to his home saying, do not even enter the village. We're not even talking about houses anymore, Richard. Just stay away from human populations. Well, before Jesus led him out of the village, then healed him and said, don't go back to the village. Because like I said before, 
Jesus must have sighed another heavy sigh when he came to this new town. And again, the people just wanted him to heal people. It happened with the Pharisees, happens with the disciples. Now he's in a new area in Bethsaida and they're doing it again. And so he found one guy, he healed him. He seemed to be getting better. So he said, don't go back to the village. Don't go back, don't go telling people because they're just gonna get excited about you being healed. You need to go out just like I'm going out because I need you to spread the seed. Like you said, Father, I healed you, but now you have a commission. You are enslaved to your blindness. Now you're enslaved to me. Absolutely. Now I own you. Pure Go exodus. Out. Pure exodus. Go out and teach. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. Christos Anesti. Alithos Anesti. Christ is risen. He is risen. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.